so good to be with you. Good to be back. Welcome back after summer. I hope you had a little bit of a break weekend or a little holiday, some time off work or something. Uh, we had a special year because it was uh, Caroline and I's 20th anniversary this year. <laughs> so, which is back in March, but we went away for a little time and uh, it was just lovely to get some time together. And um, uh, one amusing story is we went out to a restaurant and uh, when we got there, we could see it was like a special kind of night out for our, to celebrate our 20th. So, picked a nice restaurant and we get there and it had like a, it had like a room within in the restaurant just for the wine, you know, like a glass-walled room. So we thought, these guys are serious about wine, serious about wine. Anyway, so uh, we ordered the meal, and Caroline got a, a, a glass of wine. Well, when this lady came and brings the glass of wine, she brings the bottle, and she puts this, like, kind of needle through the bottle, and this, like, huge contraption, which I'd never seen anything like it before, like, pouring the wine carefully, and, uh, you know, I'd never seen anything like it, like, coming out dribble by dribble, pour this careful glass of wine, and, um, and I said, oh, I said, oh, I've never seen anything like that before. She said, oh, yeah, this is only for the very special wine, you know, only for the expensive wine. So when she went, I said, Callan, how much was that glass of wine? And she says, I don't know. I haven't got my glasses on. I can't see. I said, you're kidding me. Like, we're in this place, which is like the, the shrine of wine in the corner. And we don't know. We've ordered wine from the menu. We don't know how much it's. So we spent the rest of the meal panicking about how much was it going to be. But anyway, it was fine. It was not too bad. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a relief. But um, the other thing I noticed about holidays and summer, something's changed in me, which is this. Whenever you go to get some food somewhere, the first thought that now goes through my mind when it arrives at the table is, ooh, I should take a picture of this. Has anyone noticed that about themselves? No, you don't have that. I need to repent and become like you, Slim. I, I've noticed that that's what happens. Uh, and I said, I need to take a picture of this. And that ne I never used to think like that. And why? What's the point? I mean, no one wants to cares what I eat or wants to see a photo of it. It's so ridiculous. And I'm like, Look, why are you thinking like this? And then Caroline's like, oh, take a photo of mine as well. I was like, no. I was just like, what's changed in our society? That, you know, there's whole channels now where people just watch each other eating food. Did you know that? This whole YouTube channel is just like, just not right. Something's not right. So I need to repent of taking photos of food, I've decided, and uh, not do that anymore. But it is definitely the first thought that comes through my mind now. Anyway. Talking about, talking about holidays and photos and snaps that you, you pick up from your holiday. We're starting a new series, and we're going to look uh, today at five holiday snaps. Well, kind of mission trip snaps that Luke takes when he's on a trip with this guy called uh, Paul. And uh, I was excited when we began this series, and I got allocated this passage because actually it's a passage that I've been talking about for a couple of, uh, thinking about for a couple of years. And the passage about Paul's trip to a city called Ephesus, which is a, a, ta a city not much bigger than Bedford, a little bit bigger than Milton Keynes, perhaps about 200, 250,000 uh, people in Paul's day. And he visits there, and uh, the Ephesus was a center of the occult. It was, uh, they were um, uh, kind of pagans, they were, they were not interested in uh, worshipping the God that Paul knew at the beginning of his visit, but by the end of his visit, a whole, right in the town centre, there's this huge bonfire, and they burn all their magic paraphernalia, so much so that they reckon it was worth hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pounds, that they burned right in the city centre. And the question when I read the story a few years ago uh, that struck me, which uh, I read it again and it struck me again, is how do you get people to to burn their books. How do you get people to burn their books? How do you get people who are so transformed in their thinking that they burn their books? Because I mean, that's what it means, isn't it? You know, why not sell the books if they're all 
worth so much? Well, the reason is these people, their thinking was so changed that they thought, not only do I not want to follow those ways anymore myself, I don't want anyone else to follow them. I think my thinking is so radically transformed that I want to be living a completely different way. And the question is, how do you get people to that place? How do you get people to burn their books? What does it look like? And, and the story that we'll read today is about what happens, what God did, what Paul did to get people to that place. And I know, I know what you're thinking. Simon, Sunday, the first t- Sunday in the term is meant to be like a gentle ease in. You know, you're meant to be saying things like God loves us and, and he's good and, and we're going to be all right. Well, just turn to your neighbor and say, God is good, Jesus loves you, you're going to be all right. <laughs> just that, that's the... That's, there's, your, there's your gentle ease in to the term. There it is. You had it now. Saved you a whole Sunday. Because I want to talk about how do you bring revival? How do you turn a town, a city upside down? How do you see people's lives so radically transformed that they don't live the same way anymore? How do you get people to burn their books? How do you see radical transformation? Because I don't want to be an apathetic Christian. I don't want to be part of a church that's kind of apathetic, a little bit lukewarm, one foot in the old ways, one foot in the new. I want to be on part of something that's on fire, that's on fire for Jesus and that's on fire for his ways and that sees people's lives transformed and God's glory in our, na- in our nation. How do you get people to, t- to burn their books? So we're going to read from Acts chapter 19, and uh, uh, we looked at this uh, uh, a year or so ago, and this is going to be another take on the same passage. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Many of you will be familiar with Paul, but for those who are not, Paul was a, a, a man who was a Jew, he was educated, and uh, he was not a follower of Jesus in any way. He was, in fact, a persecutor of the church. He hated Christians, and then one day he had an encounter with Jesus on the, on the road to Damascus, and you may be familiar with that story. And Paul turns his life completely around, and this is his story. And the, and the aside is this, no matter how messed up you are, no matter what you've done in your life, no matter how much... Uh, 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 stuff you've, how badly you've behaved, how many people you've ill-treated. Paul had seen people murdered who followed Christ before he became a Christian. No matter what your background, if you will offer your life to Jesus Christ, he can turn you around. And he can use you. I don't want you to look at this story and think, oh, this is you know, some superstar. No, no, Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. He was a mess. He was a broken man. And yet he offered his life to Christ. And this is the result. This is the transformation that we see in his life. And this is what the the story goes, that Paul arrives in the city called Ephesus. Now, what do you see when you arrive at Ephesus? AD 52, that's roughly when Paul got there. What do you see? Well, the first thing you would have seen is a a bustling city. It was a trading port. Uh, It's all all got silted up, but it was on the the mouth of a river in Paul's day. And uh, it was a a cross-section. Everyone in the area would have uh, gone through Ephesus. It was a massive, it was the third most important city in the Roman Empire. And what you would have seen, though, that have stood out to you as you walked into the city was on the hill this massive temple, the temple to Artemis. And Artemis's temple was huge. It was the size of a football field. It was the biggest building in the world. 
in, in Paul's day. This was the biggest building in the world, the size of a football field. It was, uh, it was marble. It was cedar. It was this incredible building that worshipped Artemis. Artemis was the, uh, the many-breasted huntress. She was the Roman uh, uh, god, and I decided not to have a picture. Uh, uh, she was the Roman uh, god that they worshipped who looked after the animals, and, and, and so they worshipped her in, in Ephesus, and she, this was the center of worship of Artemis. And so Paul, walking in, I can imagine, would have been intimidated by the sight of this pagan, idolatrous worship that greeted him when he arrived in the city. We think we've got things in our society that stand against God. Well, Paul had a vivid representation as he walked into this city of something that stood against the ways of Christ. And yet here he was. The other thing that would have stood out to you as you walked around Ephesus was the magic and the occult, because Ephesus was the center of occult for the entire Roman Empire. Uh, There were magicians, there were sorcerers, there was uh, occult paraphernalia everywhere, which is why you get the story of them burning it at the end of this story. But that's what would have stood out to you. It would be very different to other Roman cities. They were into that stuff, but not quite like the Ephesians. And so let's read on in the story. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism as a repentance, telling the people to believe and the one who has come after him. This is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There are about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way that Christianity was called the way in the early days before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus which was like a lecture hall in Paul's day. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, and the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who the heck are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped upon them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of his house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus with many sniggers, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, and many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And just to finish the story, a man called Demetrius, who was a silversmith, then uh, crops up, and he uh, was one who was making idols to Artemis. And he said, look, these guys are preaching this news, and people are turning in their uh, numbers. Many people are coming to faith in this Christ. They're not going to worship Artemis. Our whole industry is going to become bankrupt if we don't do something. And so he riled up all the idol manufacturers, and they riled up all the citizens of Ephesus such that they all filled the theater, which I've 
stood in here, it holds 25,000 people. It was the biggest, one of the biggest theaters of its day. And in the theater, they began to shout and scream for the Christians to be uh, uh, kind of dealt with. And uh, Paul wanted to go and speak to the people in the theater, but the other disciples wouldn't let him because they said, you're going to get torn apart if you go in there. And so uh, they sent somebody else in there who I guess they cared less about. And he, uh, <laughs> he, he stood up to speak, but they, they shouted so loud great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They shouted for two hours, it says. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians until the town clerk silences the crowd and says, look guys, this is going to get us in major trouble with Rome. We better stop this kind of behavior. These guys aren't preaching anything that's that out of order. Just go to your homes. And he brings the, the crowd to order, sends them to the home. Paul then encourages the disciples and the early church that he's planted and then heads on his way. Amazing story Here's the question. The, the snaps that, photo, uh, that Luke leaves us, the photos that he leaves us from Paul's holiday <laughs> are these. How do you get people to burn their books? What does it look like to see a city transformed? And the first picture that he gives us is a spirit. We read it right at the beginning. Paul arrives. He meets 12 people who are disciples of some sort. He says, did you receive the spirit? And they say, we didn't even know there was a spirit. So he leads them uh, to faith in Christ, and then he sees them filled with the Holy Spirit. And you might not know, but that story has been incredibly controversial in the last hundred years in, in wider Christianity. Really controversial story. The reason is some people say, ah, well that story shows us that uh, you don't necessarily automatically receive the Holy Spirit when you become a believer. That there's a, like a second thing that needs to happen to you when you become a believer and you need to be prayed for like, like Paul did with these guys. And some people uh, have really uh, pushed that, that, that argument. Other people say, no, 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 these guys weren't even Christians. Paul leads them to Christ and then they are filled with the Holy Spirit, which shows that every Christian automatically feel, receives the Holy Spirit when they become Christians. So they've pushed that argument. Other people say, no, 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 that's not what's happening at all. What's happening is they were Christians, they had received the Holy Spirit, but it was like, it was kind of like bottled up. And they, it was like Paul was like the cork who just released the cork, and then they were kind of received the fullness of the Spirit. And that's what needs to happen to people today. And so you'll realize, of course, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, Christians can argue about all sorts of things, and they've been arguing about that for 100 years or so. The reality is this, and this is what I think, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> It doesn't really matter. Why? Well, look at what Luke writes about the Holy Spirit in Acts. I'll just read you some of the verses. Acts 2. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts 4. The, then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 4 verse 31. When they prayed, the place where they gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts 7. But but Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit and saw the glory of God. Acts 13, Saul, who was known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 13, verse 52, the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What's the point? What's Luke trying to say? The early church were filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just once, but over and over and over again. All of them were filled again and again with the Holy Spirit. They were a church filled with the Spirit. To be honest, the question of what did you get, when, wow, and how, and if, and what, I mean, it's, it's fine to debate that, but the real question is, are you filled with the Holy Spirit today? 
September the 1st, 2019, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Because if you're not, you should be, and you can be. It's not something you have to earn or work up. It's something that God gives as a gift. But our job is to say, God, fill me afresh with the Holy Spirit. I want to be a person who's on fire with the Holy Spirit. I don't just want to kind of dabble in this stuff. Fill me with the Holy Spirit because I want to see the things that they saw in their day. That's the, that's the real question. In fact, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus later, and what he writes to them is this. Remember, these are the guys he'd seen filled with the Spirit, and he says to them, just one thing, by the way, be filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Showing us that it's not just a one-off thing that happens to you once when you're a believer. It's something that goes on and on and on. We've got to be filled and filled and filled with the Holy Spirit. But some people kind of wrestle with this whole thing and I was chatting to a young man recently who was saying yeah but when I you know I come forward at the end of the meeting and I ask for be filled with the Holy Spirit nothing happens and I said well what do you want to happen he said well I don't know I don't want to feel something I guess I was like look it's not bad to feel something some people feel something some people don't feel something but that actually is not what's promised you don't even read in this passage that we read today that they felt anything necessarily what you read is very different. And this is what you see through the scriptures. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. This is what we should ask for. Uh, firstly, we should ask for the presence, John 14. And I'll be ask the Father, Jesus said, and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. So when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you should know the presence of the Holy Spirit walking with you as a counselor, as a friend, listening. And you should learn to listen to his voice and hear his voice and he will speak to you. And if you've not known that, then say, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit because I want to know that. I want to know that today. And then ask for fruit, Galatians 5. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. So ask for fruit because when the Spirit fills you, you will produce fruit. You know, numbers of years ago, I just thought, you know what, I've just not got enough joy. You know, I, don't, I just have not got enough joy in my life to be a Christian. It's just not right. And I, and I, and I was talking to, to, to someone and I said, if there's any more joy to be had this side of heaven, I want it. I mean, if there's not, fine, but if there is, I want it. Why? Because I don't want people meeting me and thinking, well, you know, he says he's got eternal life, but I wish he'd tell his face. You know, <laughs> I mean, the kind of joy that goes beyond circumstances, you know. So I began to ask God, give me more joy, and he has. He has done something remarkable in my life. To ask for fruit and then ask for power. Acts 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witness. And ask for gifts, 1 Corinthians 12. A spiritual gift is given to each one of us. Say each one of us. Each one of us. So we can help each other. And then he goes on to list healing and administration and leadership and prophecy and discerning of spirits. What's the point? So often, in particularly in charismatic churches like us, we focus on filling with the Holy Spirit with some external thing. And, and I'm not dismissing that or saying it's a bad thing. It's fine. It's great. Love it when God touches people and they shake or rattle or roll. That's all good. But as the old Pentecostals used to say, it does not matter how you go down. It matters how you get up. <laughs> Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it looks like this. It looks like his presence in your life. It looks like fruit. It looks like power. It looks like gifts. Ask for those things. That's what you want to ask for. And not just once. Oh, God, give me these gifts. Oh, well, he didn't. All right, I'll just get on with No! God says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. You know, my kids, the, most, the, the things that they get typically are things that they've asked for more than once. 
Because often they'll ask for lots of different things, and they'll ask for this, and they'll ask for that, and sometimes it comes and goes, but it's the things that they keep on asking for. Then I know, okay, this is serious. It's the same with God. Do you really want it? Because the Holy Spirit is a precious gift. Do you want to be filled with his spirit over and over again? Then ask him. Go into this year and say, God, fill me afresh with your spirit. Because I want to see people burn their books. I want to see lives transformed around me. Fill me. Take me deeper. Ask for more gifts. In fact, why don't you just turn to the person next to you or maybe get into groups of two or three and just take a minute. What do you need to ask for? I'm, I'm asking for patience. Not, not with you, I, just in general. <laughs> I, I'm not a very patient person, as my wife or anyone else will tell you. I'm asking for patience. I'm saying, God, I want to manifest the fruit of patience. How about you? When you just turn, get groups of two or three or just to a neighbor, what are you asking for? Alrighty, we're going to get a chance to pray for each other at the end. Remember those things that they've shared with you, because I want us to pray for each other for the things that we've asked, because we need to be a people, if we're going to see people burn their books, we need to be a people who are asking, God, fill me again with your spirit. Second thing, the second picture, the second holiday snap that Luke gives us is this incredible boldness. It says, he ent- Paul entered the synagogue for three months. He spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Paul was not uh, afraid to share and to speak boldly of his faith in Christ. And, you know, in our day, there is, there is a, there's a spiritual battle going on that's trying to create such a culture of a fear of offense that no one will say boo to the goose in case the goose gets offended. You know, th- th- there's, this, there's this culture going on that's trying to keep everyone bottled up and shut down and you know what there's something about the spirit of God that needs to come off and give us boldness because we've got to stand up because people's lives are at stake if we are not speaking the truth who will 
You know, and this is not, not to say that, you know, there are many Christians who say offensive things in the, just to be offensive. That's not what I'm talking about. But sometimes the truth is offensive by its very nature. And we cannot be afraid with hum- humility and gentleness and respect to say, look, this is the truth as I see it. Are, are we ready? Are we ready to speak out for the sake of Christ? Are we ready to stand up? And, and Paul uh, speaks boldly. He says he reasoned and he, and, he, and he discussed and he argued with them. This is what John Stott says in his excellent commentary on Acts. Paul didn't simply proclaim his message in a take-it-or-leave-it fashion. Instead, he marshaled arguments to support and demonstrate his case. He was seeking to convince in order to convert. And in fact, as Luke makes plain, many were persuaded. Are we ready to persuade people, to reason with people? There are so many different voices that are saying things that we've got to defend against and stand against and speak into. You know, the fact that many people today don't even believe there is a truth. So how can they ever find the truth of Christ if they don't believe there is a truth? That It's all relative and what's true for you is true for me and uh, is true and what's true for me is true for me. It's just complete mumbo jumbo. It's a ridiculous way of thinking and yet we've got to be willing to speak into that otherwise they can never never accept a truth. Uh, many, many people believe that Christianity was not, not based on history at all, that there's just a kind of made-up myth. We've got to be willing to speak into that and demonstrate that it is. M- many people uh, just feel like we're here by random chance. We've got to be willing to reason and speak and show people that well, there's no way we could be here by random chance. Many people feel like Christians are homophobic. We've got to demonstrate and reason and show that they are not. How are we going to stand up in our day as Paul did in his day? So many, though, so many of us, and certainly I was here, think, well, you know, this is just Paul. I mean, he was, you know, a bit of a superstar. You know, there's not been anyone quite like him. You know, I'm not sure that it's really me. But, but look at his, again, writing to the church that he's visited here some years later. This is what he says. Pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so that I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. Here's my conclusion. I don't think Paul was very bold at all. I don't think he had all the answers. I think he just said to people, you've got to pray for me. If I'll open my mouth, I'm just, I'm just saying, God, you've got to fill it. You've got to give me the boldness to open my mouth and then you've got to fill my mouth with your words because I haven't got a clue what these people need. But you know, ask that God would fill me with his words. Ask that he will fill me with his boldness. Well, you and I can pray the same prayer, can't we? You and I can pray exactly the same prayer. We've got to learn and be willing to stand up. How's your, how's your boldness? The, the third picture that Luke gives us is the place. Firstly, the spirit Secondly, the boldness. Thirdly, the place. Paul starts preaching in the synagogue, which was familiar ground. It was the kind of religious centers of the Jewish world of the day. And then he, when they won't receive it, he moves to the Hall of Tyrannus. I think there's a picture on the screen which would have been a lecture theater that would probably have operated in the morning when everyone else was working. Paul would have worked as a tent maker. And then in the afternoon when they had a long siesta, 11 till 4. That sounds great, doesn't it? 11 till 4, they had a siesta in their culture in the day because it was so hot in the day. They had no air con. Uh, that doesn't sound so good. Um, and they would just rest. But Paul didn't rest. He would be lecturing in the afternoon and then he would carry on his work in the evening. And that's kind of how they... How they ran it. Notice that Paul has got this ability to speak in the religious context, but also in the secular spaces. And, and I think if we're going to see people burn their books, we've got to do that. 
We've got to do the same thing. And it's great that we've got this building and it's great that we can invite people to different events and those kind of things and that's wonderful. But we cannot forget, as Paul did not forget, that Jesus didn't just say, tell them to come. He also said, you go. We've got to be familiar and comfortable with being in secular spaces and be able to engage with people in those places. This is what John Stott again says about Paul's activity in this area. When we contrast much contemporary evangelism with Paul, its shallowness is immediately shown up. Our evangelism tends to be too ecclesiastical, inviting people to church, whereas Paul also took the gospel into the secular world. Too emotional, appeals for a decision without an adequate basis of understanding, whereas Paul taught reason and tried to persuade. And too superficial, making brief encounters and expecting quick results, whereas Paul stayed in Corinth and Ephesus for five years, faithfully sowing gospel seed and in time, in due time, reaping a harvest. It's provoking, isn't it? <laughs> and it's not saying that inviting people to come to Alpha and to other things is a bad thing. Those are, those are good things. They are effective things. They are places where we can reason to discuss. But it is saying that we also need to be willing to go. We also need to be willing. What's God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? Where, where, which spaces is he talking calling you to go to which new ground needs to be broken this was this was virgin territory for Paul no believers had ever been there before where's he calling you to you know which group are you going to join that maybe is breaking new ground or which group do you need to start that's breaking new ground what's he saying to each one of us in terms of walking into secular spaces and bringing the good news of Jesus what does it look like? Because if we want to see people burn their books, some of those people are never going to walk through the step, these doors unless we go to them, unless we reach, reach them. Fourth picture that Paul gives is the miracles, that Luke gives is the miracles. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had, been touched, that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Notice this is Luke writing who'd already seen Paul see a lame man walk, a man who has been lame for many years walked because Paul uh, spoke to him. And, and what happens in this story, though, is Luke says, what I'd seen before was nothing compared to what we saw at Ephesus. Uh, I'm not sure why, what the difference was. I think probably there's something about a spiritually open climate that enables greater miraculous activity because there's not so much skepticism around. Maybe that was it. We don't, we don't know why. But what we, what we know is that Luke says, one of the, the pictures I want to give you of what God did in Ephesus is extraordinary miracles. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm asking God do more amongst us. We've got to see more extraordinary miracles. And it was sad over the summer, there was a, a young man, a worship leader, a well-known worship leader, who um, said that he's really struggling with his faith publicly and, and said some things which he then retracted and just basically left with, I'm really struggling. And one of the things he says in his, in his original post was, there are not many miracles. There are, miracles are rare, is what he said, I think. And as I read that, I thought, well, I'm, I'm partly, I partly disagree because... If you said that 15 years ago, I would have agreed with you. 
15 years ago, you know, we had a word of knowledge about someone here with a head and no one would respond. You know, there was so much skepticism and cynicism and, and not much happened at all. No one you prayed for got healed. It just didn't seem to move. But now, I mean, I've got pages and pages, even from last year, of God's miraculous moving and his working and, and how he's touched people and, and transformed their lives both inside and out. I mean, we've seen loads of miracles. But the thing I would agree with is we need to see more. <laughs> I, I would agree, God, give us more. In fact, all of last year, I was crying out, God, I want to see more extraordinary miracles. I want to see more breakthroughs in people's lives. There are so many people who are desperate that the doctors can't help them, that the end of resources, God, break in. And I, and I believe as we pray and seek God, we are going to see more. Just even right before the summer, we are in the Middle East again and uh, prayed for a lady who had ongoing issues with her legs post-surgery and uh, really struggled to walk without pain. And just as she, just weeping as God touched her, and she's walking pain-free, running around. It's just amazing. Another guy had a shoulder injury. Eight years, new believer, eight-year shoulder injury. And um, as we uh, prayed for him, the team uh, prayed for him, uh, I asked him, he came forward to testify, and I said, what, what happened with you? He's like, I've, my shoulder's been healed. I said, like, is there anything you couldn't do? He's like, I couldn't do press-ups. I haven't done press-ups for eight years. I was like, can you do one now? He's like, he gets down, he does 10. <laughs> Some people in the room say, there's nothing wrong with my shoulder, I can't do 10. But he was like, he just bangs out 10. It was just brilliant. He's crying, his people, family are crying around him. Just like, God, break in with more miracles. Extraordinary miracles. We need to open ourselves and realize we are channels of his power. Uh, what I do when I pray with someone is I just take a moment to picture God. I, I take my mind off of the situation in front of me and I say, God, fill me with a vision of you <laughs> because this isn't my power. There's nothing I can do. This is your power. I picture God and then I just picture myself as like a, a channel, a, a tube and say, God, flow through me into this person. Just a, just a, a simple way I, I just use to just connect with his power and his life because he has called each one of us. You, you might say, well, this was just Paul. No, no, no. It, it says, these signs will follow those who believe in my name. These signs will follow. We will see these things as we ask the Lord for it. And then last year, lastly, the, the fifth picture that Luke gives us is the kickback. He gives us a clash of kingdoms and he gives us these two accounts. One is this kind of demonic uh, manifestation of this guy who actually Paul wasn't involved with, but it, it was illustrative clearly to Luke of what was going on, what was kicking off. There was a, it was a kingdom battle. And if you've got no kind of concept of the spiritual world that we live in, I'd urge you to, uh, to there's some uh, great books you can get. Come and chat to me at the end, I could introduce you. Because I, I was a, a, a skeptical, atheist, scientific background. I had no concept of a spiritual world, of demons, of angels. I just thought it was a lot of rubbish. But I've come to realize and experience much of that supernatural power in my life since I changed my thinking on that activity and what was going on and and then Luke shows us this picture of the riot because I think he wants us to realize yes there was a huge breakthrough here but there was also a kickback <laughs> the danger can be that we want to see people burn their books and think well it's just going to be easy but the reality is there is often opposition there is often a battle in fact Paul writes to the church in Ephesus later and he says this our struggle is not against flesh and blood 
that against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These guys in Ephesus were seeing it every day. They were waking up each morning to see the temple of Artemis. They were walking through the streets and seeing the magic books. They were, it was in their faces. And Paul said to them, look, guys, although those are there, don't forget, this is not really about that stuff. This is about a spiritual battle. There is a war going on. I think the same message applies to us. We've got to recognize if we're going to see people transformed in this way, we are going to see a kickback. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to be spiritually sharp enough to recognize what's going on. There's a spiritual war going on. I mean, I've, I, you know, we've watched this, the, the um, footage of Syria this last few years. Uh, so many times I've thought, I'm so glad I didn't, wasn't born into a war zone. But then I have to check myself and think, you have been born into a war zone. <laughs> This is a war zone. We can't see it. The people aren't fighting each other on the streets. There is a spiritual war going on. We've got to wake up. We, we haven't got temples on the, on the hill and behind us. We can't see it physically like that, but it is going on around us. And as believers, we've got to recognize if we're going to see lives transformed, if we're going to see people burning their books, turning their whole lives upside down, there is going to be a battle for it. And the enemy's not going to give up people easily. We shouldn't be afraid of it, but we should be ready for it. A number of years ago, Caroline and I, we, we were just, as a church, was just being started and breaking through. We had this whole thing. She had this a dream and then this whole kind of scenario break out around this whole dream. And, and we began to pray and said, God saved us from this whole disastrous thing. We, we recognized at the time, it woke us up to there is a spiritual battle going on here. And so often you're seeing fruit over here, God's changing lives. And then what happens? It's over here. <laughs> you will notice that? There's a sickness, there's a financial difficulty, something over here. What's the enemy trying to do? Distract you from what, what God's doing. Take your focus off what he's doing because he's wanting to, God's wanting to break through his enemies. Like, well, I just, I want you, I don't care where you are as long as you're not there. Just take you over here somewhere. Sometimes it's through success. He'll distract you through success. He'll do anything to take your eye off the ball of what God wants to do. We have to wake up because God wants us to be a people who see people burn their books, who see radical transformation. And Luke gives us these amazing pictures these amazing pictures of what he saw through Paul. I think there are encouragements that not only can we see it today, but that we should expect it today. <laughs> Be filled with the Spirit. Ask him for boldness. Engage in secular spaces. Just be present. Where's God taking you? Wake up to the spiritual reality and expect extraordinary miracles. Ask God for it. And I believe as we see these things, we are going to see people burn their books, turn their lives upside down to follow Jesus. Let's pray, shall we?